Introduction, Part 2 of Commentary on the Gospel of John, Book 10, by Cyril of Alexandria, translated by Rev. Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 24. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. He once more deals with a difficult subject, which required of him accurate explanation, and again brings forward illustrations by which they might have their understanding better fitted to fully comprehend the depth of the mystery. And he confirms the minds of his hearers in order that they might not be allured by the ignorant prejudices of the Jews, and in their desire to bring their own ideas into conformity with the Jewish do despite unto the holy teaching of the gospel. What I wish to say is this in plain words. For the law having a shadow and an impressed type until a time of reformation, according to the saying of Paul, hath been our tutor to bring us unto Christ, and provided, as it were, a preliminary training for virtue according to godliness. If any one then were to call the Mosaic dispensation preparatory to true worship in spirit, he would not miss the mark. For, for this reason, the law brought nothing to perfection. But our Lord Jesus Christ showed us no longer the shadow of things, but the reality itself openly, no longer sketching the outline of virtue in types and figures, as Moses did, but setting it up naked in the public sight, accomplishing the perfect man in righteousness. The instruction of the words of Christ was then a shifting and molding of the types into truth. And since, as the truth was already shining forth, it was superfluous for the shadow any longer to prevail, Christ ordained that those who came to him by faith should no longer frame their conduct by the types of the law. This was very grievous to the Jews, for they thought that Christ came to destroy the old law, although they heard him saying openly, I come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill. For I say unto you, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass away from the law till all things be accomplished. The realization of excellence which was introduced by the laws of Christ brings with it the fulfillment of the shadow of the law, as we have just said. For inasmuch as in their headstrong passion they became backsliders into disobedience, and assuming a zeal for the law not according to knowledge, they thought themselves to be advocating the law by rejecting the commandments of Christ. It was for this very reason, in order that he might not seem to any to be laying down some new and peculiar laws adverse to the will of God the Father, he conveyed this useful and necessary rebuke. The word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let not any one of those who come to me by faith, he says, think that I have made any discourse not in accord with the will of God the Father. The tidings of the gospel are his, and not another's. But he gave them not as ashamed of the older enactments, nor again as though the better commandment had been unveiled at the moment, but rather because the type had been molded into reality at the fitting time. For he that said those things by me to the men of old time says this also now to you. For I am the living word that interprets the ineffable will of God the Father. 
Wherefore am I called the angel of great counsel? For either after this manner we shall receive the saying, I mean the following, The word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Or we shall understand it in another way. For he says that his own word is the word of God the Father, that they who keep it may know that they honor God when they are persuaded by the words which come from him, while others, falling into the contrary extreme and not disdaining by disobedience to insult the commandment given to them, sin against the nature of the Most Highest. Now it was possible in two ways to confirm the minds of his hearers, for either the wish to honor God would incline them at all events to obedience, or the fear of coming into conflict with him would also have this effect. For the calculation of what is useful and expedient runs through both methods. And when he says, It is not my word, he does not at all put out of our sight the peculiar character which he bears as the word and God. And while he still wears his homely shape, and appears and truly is in the guise of manhood, and is really like as we are when he is saying this. He is not willing that his word should be thought merely human, but really divine and regal, of necessity merging his character in that of the Father, in order that he might not, by sundering himself, admit the conception of two sons, as the Son is one and the same both before and after his incarnation. For Christ is one, and not two, as some say. For the word proceeding from the Father, being God, became flesh according to the saying of John, not by conversion into flesh, but by enshrining his divinity in flesh from the womb of the Holy Virgin. In order then that we may not think his word is merely human, or divest the gospel teaching of its divine character, but may be convinced that it comes from the God who is over all, appropriately and with great reason, inasmuch as he was then appearing to them in the form of man, he attributes his words to his divine nature, as in the character of God the Father, from whom and in whom he is by nature, as his effulgence and his word, and the express image of his person. 25.26. These things have I spoken unto you, while yet abiding with you. But the Comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send unto you in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I said. Contrarywise, his speech has in it the human element, and is not quite foreign to the standards we apply to ourselves, to the extent that the mind into which it entered was fitted to receive the words before us. Perhaps some one will plausibly say that Christ is not amongst us according to the power of his Godhead, although he fills the universe and is not wholly separated from anything, but rather encompasses with unspeakable might earth and heaven, and does not leave the depths of the abyss. For where is not God? When, then, he says, These things have I spoken unto you, while yet abiding with you, we must think that he there speaks as a man, and since he was about to vanish from our sight, 
I mean according to the flesh. He says this when the preparation for his departure into heaven was complete. And he says that the most perfect and complete revelation to us of the mystery is through the Comforter, that is, the Holy Ghost, sent from the Father in his name, I mean that of the Son. For as his Spirit is Christ in us, therefore he says, He shall teach you all things that I said. For since he is the Spirit of Christ, and his mind, as it is written, which is not else but what he is, in regard to identity of nature, even though he be both conceived of and is existent, he knows all that is in him. And Paul will be our witness, saying, For who knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the things of God none knoweth, save the Spirit of God. Wherefore, as knowing what is in the counsel of the only begotten, he reporteth all things to us, not having the knowledge thereof from learning, that is, that he may not seem to fill the rank of a minister, and to transmit the words of another, but as his Spirit, as we said just now, and knowing untaught all that belongeth to him of whom and in whom he is, he revealeth to the saints the divine mysteries, just as man's mind too, knowing all things that are therein, ministereth externally by uttered word the desires of the soul whose mind it is, being mentally discerned in the thoughts, and named as something else than itself, not other by nature but as a part complemental of the whole, existing in it, and believed to go forth from it. Such a relation as this is inapplicable to the ineffable divine nature. For small is all the power of illustrations, even if it go on to subtleties. The perfect knowledge, then, is begotten in the saints by the Spirit, and, indeed, the inspired Paul exhorts some, I also, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which is among you, and the love which ye show toward all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working which he hath wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. For in the revelation of these things by the Spirit working in us in an unspeakable way, we see the deep meaning of the incarnation and the power of the hidden mystery, and that his Spirit, indwelling in the saints, accomplishes the presence and the power of Christ himself, and teaches all things that he has spoken unto us, Paul will once more make none the less clear to us by the words, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, 
from whom every family both in heaven and on earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory that ye may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith to the end that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be strong to apprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of christ which passeth knowledge that ye may be filled unto all the fullness of god furthermore we must show that when he said that all would be revealed by the spirit to the saints he does not give them over to another master do not think that but he keeps them by his side through the spirit no longer seen by the eye of the flesh but rather gazed upon as became a god by the intellectual vision of the heart twenty seven peace i leave with you my peace i give unto you not as the world giveth give i unto you let not your heart be troubled neither let it be fearful herein when he reminds his holy apostles of his ascension into heaven and prepares them for the knowledge that they will be left thereby alone by the saying these things have i spoken unto you while yet abiding with you he was stricken at heart by the knowledge being as he was by nature god that the saying gave them no small alarm and put them into great fear and trembling and by laying a burden of grief upon them had stirred the mind of each to its depths for what could be more grievous than their sorrow and what so burdensome as to be robbed of the highest blessings and to undergo the unexpected loss of that which was most dear to them he therefore establishes them when they were disturbed by grief and fear for the cause and root of their sorrow his being about to leave them and go to his father was most well grounded but he considered their apprehension of unknown suffering as the cause of their grief and very readily as he who was strong to save was no longer present according to the actual vision of the body and how does he establish them and in what way does he produce in them the brightness of a cheerful spirit and how are their minds lulled again into a divine calm peace i give unto you he says my peace i leave with you i have often told you he says that i will not leave you desolate nor will you dwell alone in the earth stripped and robbed of your defender nay rather i will be with you and though absent in the flesh will again edify you by my consolations as god and will set you above every terror and no man shall surpass you in boldness for all fear shall dwindle away and cowardice shall vanish from your path and a divine power shall spring up in you bringing you with peaceful mind and heart at rest to the revelation of those things which pass man's understanding and now he says peace i give unto you not simply but my peace and this was clearly nothing else but saying i will bring the spirit and of myself will abide with those who receive him for that the peace of christ is his spirit it needs no long argument to completely demonstrate 
but I suppose one ought to say this, if he is peace in heaven and on the earth, how can it fail to be clear to every one that, as we have said, the peace is certainly his spirit? And indeed the inspired Paul said to some, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall guard your hearts and your thoughts. And surely it is right to reflect that it is not about that peace which has reference to common thought and action that he says this. For that disposition which loathes dispute and strife has and works peace, so far as its own waverings and inclinations will allow it. But we shall not think that the peace which is here meant is something which has not a real and independent existence. But we must suppose that it is found in the temper of those who love it. How then can one think that such a peace as this surpasses all understanding? For that which nowhere and nohow has an independent existence, how could that be thought better and nobler than men or angels or even higher beings? For these too we say are mind. The peace therefore that is above all principality and power and thrones and sovereignties and excels all intellectual existence is the spirit of christ by which the son reconciles all things to god the father by willing the things that are his and by wishing to think and do them and not by being perverted or falling away through turning aside to wickedness and it is easy and expedient to reflect on this for just in the same way as since the Son is by nature life, and wisdom, and power, and the Spirit is called and is His, the Spirit is of life, and wisdom, and power. So since the true and sovereign peace is He Himself and no other, His Spirit might rightly be named and thought as He is. Peace for this reason, and in a special manner referring his own peace, that is to say, the Spirit, to his own nature, he says concerning him, My peace I leave with you, that also in the holy prophets the Spirit of Christ has been so named. You will easily perceive, when you hear this from the mouth of Isaiah, O Lord our God, grant us peace, for thou hast given us all things. For as the law brought nothing to completion, and righteousness according to it did not suffice to bring men to perfect piety, he entreats that the Holy Spirit be vouchsafed, by whom, reconciled to God the Father, we have been admitted into fellowship with him, who have before been shown to be reprobates through the sin that reigneth in us. Grant us then peace, he says, Lord, for thou hast given us all things. And what he wants to show, I say, is this. Grant us too, Lord, the peace, for we shall then confess that we have all things, and no blessing will be found lacking to him that has once for all reached the fullness of Christ. For it is the completion of all good that God should dwell in us by the Spirit. For since the spirit is fully sufficient to allay all tumult of the mind, and to dispel all cowardice in us, he promises to give us as provision by the way, that which is needful to maintain our courage and peace, when he says, My peace I leave with you, 
let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. 28. Ye heard how I said to you, I go away, and I come unto you. You learnt, he says, from no other lips than mine my departure hence, for you heard my sayings with your own ears, and what have I, who cannot lie, promised unto you? I go away, and I come unto you. If then his words had threatened that his departure would leave them comfortless, and that their bereavement would be eternal, it was very likely that they would thereupon be dreadfully dismayed, and find it unbearable, and fall into excess of despondency. And whereas I said unto you, not simply that I would go away, but that I would come again in due season, why then, he says, do you let into your hearts only the cause of grief, and slight by your forgetfulness that which is able to cheer? Let that which knows how to succor arise in you to combat that which affrights, and let the power of the comforter wrestle with the incitements to grief. For it has been ordained that I should descend to God the Father, but I have promised to come again. He allays then the agony of grief he found in his disciples. And just as a fond and good father, compelled for some needful purpose to take his children from the nurse that bears them, and seeing a flood of tears bedewing their delicate and dear cheeks, he tries every blandishment, and by always insisting on the good that will result from her absence, arms in some sort hope against grief, where the affections are most nearly concerned. So also our Lord Jesus Christ shields the souls of his saints from sorrow. For he knew, being truly God, that his abandonment of them would be very grievous unto them, although he were ever with them by the Spirit. And this proves his love and extreme holiness. For to wish to be with Christ, how does not that most truly become the saints? And of a truth the admirable Paul has this in view when he says, it is better to depart and be with Christ. End of Introduction